now in our Savior's name. Amen. Uh, Will you turn with me uh, in your Bible uh, to Mark chapter 15? Uh, Mark chapter 15. And we're going to look at the second half, as it were, of this chapter. Not quite half, slightly less than that. But we're going to pick up at verse number 33. This morning, we looked at verse 1 to 32. And that, of course, is available to listen again using our Facebook page. You can find those links. But tonight we're looking at Mark chapter 15, verse 33, to the end of the chapter. Let's read God's word together. It says this, um, and when the sixth hour had come, uh, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabathani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he's, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the younger and of Jesus and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died, and summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph, and Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Jesus saw where he was laid. And we'll end a reading there at the end of the chapter. Let's just pray for a moment, shall we? Father, open our eyes, uh, enable us to see the truth of your word. And may uh, Jesus shine in all of his glory before us as we consider him again. And we ask this now in Jesus. Amen. Hillsborough, uh, Levison, uh, Grenfell, Manchester Arena bombing. These are all famous public inquiries undertaken by the government. Uh, They are all long, detailed assessments of evidence, uh, painstaking, uh, no stone left unturned, and they all share some things in common. One very big bill for the taxpayer. One very big question. What really happened? And one very desired conclusion. Who is to blame? 
Here tonight, uh, we want to look at the events of Jesus on the cross. Uh, this morning, uh, he was risen from the grave. He, he has risen from his tomb. Uh, that's what happened on Resurrection Sunday all those years ago. But what happened when he was on the cross reveals to us some telling things about him and what he came to earth for in the first place. And we ask the question, what just happened? And we'll need to gather some evidence for our inquiry tonight. Let's firstly look at some physical evidence. We have two major pieces of physical evidence. Uh, One is a piece of natural uh, phenomena. Uh, We have darkness when it should be light. Uh, Verse 33 uh, that we read says it was dark across the land from the sixth hour, that's uh, midday uh, to you and me, uh, all the way until the ninth hour, that's three o'clock in the afternoon. So it's dark at the brightest part of the day. What does that tell us? Well, it tells us that something very big was going on. This happens at both ends of, of Jesus' life, uh, that the heavens take notice. They, they take notice on the day that he was born. You'll remember the wise men, and what are they doing? They're following the star, and they took notice, the, the heavens, when the day he died. This is no ordinary criminal meeting the justice of the harsh Roman regime. This is no run-of-the-mill example of capital punishment In in Matthew's account in chapter 27 of his gospel, we read that not only was it dark when it should be light, but that that there was an earthquake and that the rocks were torn apart. And also, even more shockingly, there were dead people coming out of the graveyard and appearing to people in Jerusalem. Can you imagine the headlines? Interesting, that one, isn't it? You're out for a drive. Uh, And you hear helicopters overhead, uh, 12 high-spec Range Rovers with darkened windows whiz past you and the road up ahead is cordoned off. And you say to the person beside you in your car, it's another bank holiday in Northern Ireland in lockdown. No, you don't. No, you say, something big is going on. Something big is going on. I wonder what it is. On the first piece of evidence alone, that's clear. There's something earth-shattering happening. Something of cosmic significance even, because the heavens are taking notice. The the stars, the sun. The second piece of evidence that we have of a physical nature is a torn curtain in the temple. The curtain in the temple was not out of the ancient equivalent of Ikea, uh, this curtain was a real decorative masterpiece. It, uh, it was made from uh, blue and purple and scarlet material, uh, finely twisted linen all weaved together. It was highly ornate, but it was also highly huge, approximately 60 feet tall, uh, four inches thick. That's the width of your hand. And it covered the most holy part of the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, you had the holy place that was only men allowed only jewish men allowed and then you had the most holy place that was further in the holy of holies it calls it in the king james bible where where only the high priest was allowed and only one day a year a day known as the day of atonement 
And the holy place and the holy of holies were separated by our curtain. This curtain that we're considering. This was all part of, a, of an elaborate and deeply symbolic religious system given by God to his Old Testament people. And God dwelt uh, in his presence in the Holy of Holies between the cherubim at the Ark of the Covenant on the mercy seat. And this curtain was like a new entry sign. I read that in my child's um, Easter book. And it's very, sometimes you learn some wonderful truth in children's books. That's what it is. It's a new entry sign into the Holy of Holies. But it's ripped as Jesus breathed his last. And so we know not only is there something big going on in the, in the, in the cosmos, we know there's something big going on in the Jewish religious system. Something deeply symbolic, something even actual going on. Perhaps you're already drawing conclusions in your mind as to what's going on on the cross. But hold fire. As we continue our public inquiry, let's now carefully consider our witness accounts. We have three key witnesses. We have a Gentile and we have two Jews. One Gentile and two Jews. We have a Roman soldier who's present at the scene. We have a man on the cross called Jesus who speaks up. And we have a member of the Jewish council, a member of the Sanhedrin. His name is Joseph and he's from Arimathea. We also have three, three women that's watching on. They, they, they show their devotion to Jesus later in the story. But, and we know who they are. Uh, verse 40 has identified them. They're Mary, Mary and Salome. But their actions are somewhat inconclusive to our investigation. Because as, as they look on, they're far enough back that we, that we can't hear any words uttered from them. And we're not told about any. We might also expect a lot more witnesses and followers. Uh, Eleven in particular. But they're nowhere to to be seen. They've all taken to their heels. So we'll focus on our three key witnesses and their accounts. Firstly, the Roman centurion. Uh, We have this man who's a part of the Roman machine, uh, the machine that was incredibly efficient at things like ending people's lives, Uh, the the machine that has devised the cross, uh, as cruel as they could think of as a form of execution. And this man is just doing his job, as it were. He's, he's in the right place at the right time, present at the cross to keep things ticking along towards that goal of uncomfortable death. Responsible even for bringing the time of death uh, to news to, to Pilate. He, he, he's, he has to do that. But while he waits on, he witnesses these strange phenomena himself. He sees with his eyes. He's a good witness for us to call. And the hardened Roman soldier, the centurion, watches closely. Look at verse 39, what it says. He stood facing Jesus and it says he saw that in this way he breathed his last. He saw that in this way he breathed his last. What does that mean? Well, that means that he saw the context in which Jesus breathed his last. He, he heard his words. He, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll consider them in a moment. Uh, he, he felt the earthquake. Uh, he heard the noise of the rocks ripping apart. And in that context, Jesus breathed his last. 
Matthew tells us in his gospel that he was filled with awe. That means he was scared. Uh, he was in fear and wonder. Uh, good fear, good wonder, uh, but, but, that, but still fear and wonder, right? Uh, and he comes, to this, uh, he comes to his conclusion. He sees with his eyes, he hears with his ears, and he, and he doesn't sit on the fence. No, he calls it. He comes to this conclusion, and we have it there written for us in black and white. He comes to his conclusion, verse 39, at the end. Truly this man was the Son of God. He sees and, and he believes. It wasn't always obvious, but, but, but his eyes are wide open now to this Jesus. He, he, he has, I am sure, witnessed many a crucifixion. I mean, you don't get to be the centurion on your first month in the job, right? But he hasn't witnessed a crucifixion like this one. He has seen suffering before, but not like this. He, he's seen the, 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 the reaction of, of, of the of of the sun, uh, he's, he's seen the reaction of the of the earth around him. It's not normal. He's heard the words coming from Jesus. They're not normal words that you would say. And he concludes that it was the Son of God in front of him. I wonder about you, as you read his testimony, as you are being, are you, as you're given the evidence, I mean, what, 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 do you, what do you see? What, what, what is the, the kind of pulling together of all? What, what do you see in this? What is your vision of who this is and what's going on here, in other words? Our second witness is Jesus himself. He speaks here in verse 34. He says a lot more, in fact, than what we have in Mark's gospel. There, there are famously seven um, sayings from the lips of Jesus on the cross. Uh, and Mark, he only records the middle one, the, the number four. Uh, and it's this. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, why would he say that? Mark records his very words in Aramaic, uh, the spoken language of the day that Jesus would have used. And they remain in our English Bible, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabathani. Some mishear Eloi and think he's calling Elijah, but he isn't. Jesus is actually identifying himself with this statement. And he's doing that by quoting scripture, Psalm number 22, to be precise. That's the one before the famous Psalm. Uh, which opens up with these words. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22 is, is all about a righteous one uh, who suffers even though he is innocent. He, he suffers. And of course that's what happened to Jesus. He's rejected and he's mocked by the people of Israel. He's sacrificed by Rome to keep the uneasy peace. He's, he's abandoned by his followers. They're nowhere to be seen. And suffering as a sinner is Jesus' fate, even though he never sinned in his life. Jesus identifies himself as the Psalm 22-1 with his words. It's a question, a question which shows that God has forsaken him as he hangs on the cross. Why has he done that? Well, holy God... Uh, cannot look at sin. So he forsakes 
Jesus. He, he breaks communion, as it were. Difficult to, to get to the, the, the gist of this. We've got the Trinity, which, which can't be broken, but we've got this uh, clear, obvious statement that the Father is forsaking the Son. So we're in difficult waters here. But what we do know is that Christ became sin for us. And holy God cannot abide sin. And so Jesus, as he takes upon himself the sins of the world, is forsaken by the Father. Which leads us to a clear understanding, clearer surely, a clearer piece of evidence to lead us to conclusions about what really happened that day on the cross. Our third witness is Joseph. We're told that he's a well-respected member of the council. That's the Sanhedrin. That's the Jewish ruling council. And he enters the story in the second part of what we read there. After Jesus has died, when evenings come, it's the day of preparation. That's the day before Sabbath. That's the Friday night. And Jesus has breathed his last and he's died. And Joseph's words are not actually recorded. But we do know that he spoke to, to Pilate because he has to ask for Jesus' remains. We see that in verse 43. He had to take courage. He had to be brave. He had to spend some money because he needed a linen shroud. And he asks for Jesus' body. And once Pilate's sure that he's actually dead, he's checked with our witness number one, who's the centurion. And once he's done that, Joseph's request is granted. But his motivation for doing such a thing it has, to be, has to be questioned here. I mean, why does, it, why does he want Jesus' body? Why does he want to, to bury him in a, in a tomb cut out of the rock? Well, verse 43 clears it up for us who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God. He's looking for something with Jesus. He's seen something. He's a good witness too. I mean, it perhaps seems a little strange that the whole council convict Jesus of blasphemy just a few verses above. That's what they did. And then we have this member of the council, respected even, wanting to give him a fitting burial. Why would he do that? Why would he care? They've just confirmed that he's guilty, and then now this one respected member of the council is... I mean, verse 1 of this chapter, uh, in fact, Luke 22, verse 70, it makes it very clear that the Sanhedrin were all in agreement. Seems a little strange, doesn't it? But why not look at it with me the other way? Why would you make up that one of the enemies of the early church, one of those who caused such bitterness and angst for the new Christians, why would you make up that he was one who changed his mind and believed that he was the one they'd been waiting for after all? When, when the sky goes black and the curtain tears, perhaps the light goes on in your soul and you believe... You wouldn't make that sort of thing up, would you? About a member of the Sanhedrin. Not if you were fabricating a story. Certainly not in the context of all the other close followers disappearing and taking to their heels. No, the only other possibility is that it's true. He's changed his mind, Joseph. He's seen in this Jesus something of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God that he's looking for. The Messiah that, that, that they all rejected. Now he, now he means something to him. 
Do you remember Jesus' first words in Mark, way back at the beginning? Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying this, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Joseph has clearly changed his mind. He's accepted this man as the one with whom God brings his kingdom to earth. His man, his his king is Jesus. The one who inaugurates the coming of God's righteous reign on earth. The one who brings the gospel. The good news of sins forgiven. The good news of peace with God because of Jesus' cross work. Of the sure and certain hope of eternal life in in a new earth. A new heaven and a new earth. His body is not worthless rubbish, the way he probably once believed as an enemy. One he he and the rest of the council wanted rid of. No, his lifeless body is worthy, for he is worthy. Worthy of worship. And so he wraps him in his linen shroud that he had to spend money to get, and he lays it in a new tomb cut out of the rock. Because he believes. He believes that Jesus is something special. And he rolls the big stone down in front of our female witnesses. And his witness clearly gives us another piece in the question of what is Jesus doing and and what's going on here. Let's sum up, shall we? As we close, from our physical evidence, we can sum up that something big was going on in the world. Uh, The darkness shows us this. The, The other accounts of an earthquake and tearing of rocks show us this. And something big has happened in the Jewish faith. For the 60-foot curtain has ripped of its own accord from the top to the bottom. A new day has dawned. The physical evidence points to a significant event for the world and for the Jewish faith. From our witnesses, we see more. Uh, The Roman centurion has seen a lot of death, but he's never seen a death like this one. And as the sun takes notice and the earth trembles and Jesus cries out to God in his anguish, well, we can learn that from those words that he was an innocent man suffering great injustice, mockery, suffering insult. But more than that, he is showing us the most significant suffering that he endures is as a sin offering because God can't look, the Father can't look on sin. And so he forsakes him. Jesus is being punished by God for sin. And he, he did no sin. He, he was innocent. So, so it has to be that it's, a, it's the sin of others. That's what's going on. He's enduring hell for others. Hell being the very absence of God's goodness. For Joseph, this is part of the kingdom of God being unfurled. This is the man who, who the kingdom of God is all wrapped up in as he wraps him up in the linen shroud. This is the one who brings the good news to all who, who will repent and, and trust in him and follow him wholeheartedly. What's just happened is something powerful. It's that the son of God, the very agent of creation, has died. Only something really significant knocks out the son. S-U-N. Only something really powerful can make the earth shake. Something of cosmic significance has occurred. The Son of God has died. What has happened for the Jewish faith is is a new thing, a very new thing. God has opened the way up to himself. The barrier 
has gone. The curtain is torn in two. It's not just the Jews who can come to him. The male Jews, no, they couldn't even come. It was just the high priest. But, but now it's, it's anyone who believes. It's, it's anyone. God and his people are reconciled by the middle man of Jesus Christ. The evidence says that he was the son of God. That's what the Roman centurion says. The evidence says that he was suffering there for sinners and as a sin offering. That's what Jesus' words tell us. And the evidence is that he was bringing in the kingdom of God. That's what Joseph tells us with his words. The gospel. He was paying the price for sinners. He was enduring the cross in all its anguish and abandonment for us. So we would never be abandoned by God. Who's to blame for the cross? The Jews? Yes. The Romans? Yes. God and his plan? Yes. But also you and I. We sinned as Adam's children. We live for me in God's world. And we thumbed our nose at his way and rules. We made the whole thing necessary. And God's perfect plan was to send Jesus to die to rescue us. And when Jesus rises from this new tomb on, on this very morning, when he rises as is stated in chapter 16 verse number 8, verse number 6 in chapter 16, he does so confirming all the conclusions that we've reached tonight. In fact, he rubber stamps them, as it were. He doesn't leave the stone unturned in his quest because he comes out from the grave to complete the very reason he came into the world. He turns the stone over and he rises. Confirming his identity as God's suffering Messiah. Confirming the offering is completed. The price has been paid. Confirming the sacrifice has been accepted by God. And confirming that the kingdom is set for worldwide gospel proclamation. Unleashed on the world. And the world will never be the same again. Because Jesus has risen. The victory is his. For people like us who repent and believe the victory is ours. And death and hell and the devil. Well they're on notice. They are defeated. And one day it will be finally signed, sealed and delivered. Jesus. That's what he's done on the cross. That's what he's done by rising. That's what our witness statements teach us. That's what the evidence points to. And that's a message worth living for. And that is even a message worth dying for. That is the gospel that we proclaim. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for what happened that, that Easter all those years ago. And give us the emboldened assurance that the evidence is clear. It really happened in history. It really happened and it makes all the difference. And the world will never be the same again because Jesus is alive. 
And we pray for everyone listening at home and everyone here in the building with us that you will give us that confidence and that assurance that we can share a message like that because it changes lives. It brings people who are enemies into a peaceful relationship with you. And it's something worth living for and something worth dying for. And we pray this message now and we pray these things in in our Saviour's name. Amen. And the musicians are going to come and sing our final song in the tomb so cold uh, they laid him. Thank you.